and welcome to another episode of Sounds from the 70s with Gary and Rob. Coming to you from an undisclosed location far from the downtown metropolis area. Today, Rob, yeah. <laughs> why do I always not, do that? Not like, I know it's very accu- accusation. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, why don't you pay attention? But you are paying attention. <laughs> and it's, uh, as much attention as I'm able, yes. Yeah. Oh, I don't know why that's coming up. I don't know why that's... Oh, there it is. Okay. So today, Rob, we are... (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) Today we are starting a new four-episode theme. Four episodes? This is hard. Okay, go ahead. And uh, if you cannot uh, talk so much... Yeah, you've been talking way too much this episode. (laughs) Today we are starting a new four-episode theme, and it is Power Pop of the late 1970s. Oh, that's the one I forgot. <laughs> I, just, I just remembered the tab that I forgot. Okay. Uh, okay. There's always one. Yeah, it's the Power Pop tab. Now, if you are not familiar with the term Power Pop... As I am not. We will be discussing that later in the show as soon as I put up the tab. Now, when I put up the tab, I will be handing the microphone off to Rob... So there will be a lot of nonsense being said for the minute or two until I find the, the tab. It's your, your gardening network property. <laughs> Excuse me. Are you getting the tab yet? Can I talk? No, no, the tab's not coming on for a while. Um, uh, along, with, along with discussing about what power pop is and why there's a difference between late 70s power pop and the middle of the 70s power pop. I don't know if we're going to get into all that today. Maybe. I don't know. I don't have time. I got I got things to do. I got chicks to meet. It's really time. Anyways. Yeah. yeah, I got to. Yeah, yeah. We're supposed to do something, uh, me and this Later girl, on, yeah. yeah. And anyways, uh, so we are reviewing <laughs> the album The Knack. Well, the group The Knack and their 1979 debut album, Get The Knack. So if you, if you bought the album... In 1979, they would say, what did you get? And you would say, I, I, I get the, the knack. knack. I got the knack. I got the knack. Yeah. <laughs> and they'd say, well, I hope you feel better. And so, in fact... See a doctor about that. Uh, in fact, all four albums we will be reviewing in this theme were released in 1979, which really was the start of the power pop movement uh, until the late, not late, until the early 1980s. So tell your neighbors and friends how cool that fact is that all <laughs> albums are from 1979. Wouldn't they be blown away from that? Well, is it better than the, before they were all from 1971? So we moved out of 71, we're going to 79, and we'll lose another well, year. What albums are all from 1971? Uh, by golly, uh, we did all the uh, those ones that... Uh... There was one thing we did where the albums were all from 1977. I think it was a disco one. The disco one? The disco one, for some reason, all the albums were from 1977. Oh, the Crosby, Stills, and I can Nash, name, and I can one. name them. The Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young one. That was all from the early 70s there. 70 or 71, was it? Well, yeah, but that was kind of... We were doing a year in the life of Crosby, so, so it kind of made sense. It wasn't all you, one year because you, there was some in 1970, and then there was a couple in 1971. Close enough. Okay. I can name the albums. I know... I know that we're kind of going off stream a little bit, but Rob brought this up. That's why I try yeah. not to get him to talk. <laughs> it's almost like the that. disco one. I remember had we did Saturday Night Fever, mm. 
Maybe we didn't do Saturday Night Fever. Maybe we did. But that was 1977. <laughs> I can't remember whether we did Saturday Night Fever as a soundtrack or as a disco album. I can't remember. But we did Saturday Night Fever. We did the Donna Summer album. I remember yesterday that was 1977. We did another album that was disco in 1977. Esmeralda, no. Santa Esmeralda. Santa Esmeralda. Uh, with... Uh, House of the Rising Sun, or Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. I can't remember which one. Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. Yeah, and I think those are the three albums. So, Mm -hmm. uh, see, I remember that. I didn't need the big blue book of episodes that we have. (laughs) I got that off the top of my head. Uh, We had another 10 shows. But all these are from 1979, and it just so happens that if we didn't do them from 1979, we wouldn't do Power Pop, because that's really when it started. Uh, and where was I now that you that you just sidetracked the show? Sidetracked. Uh, I said a lot of people at the gardening show. Oh, last last episode we were talking about. We did remember the last episode with the Carol King episode. Yeah, the top she, I complained. We were fighting. No, why don't you shut the fuck up? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, people, no, no. but sometimes I, I have to tell I'm him jaunty mood to shut the fuck <laughs> up because. He actually interrupts every single word of my script. I know, I get bored. I'm going to distract myself. So, if you think that uh, that was overboard, too bad you're not here with him. Uh, last episode we did, I complained how I had just gotten over a, a terrible strain of the flu. Now, the next day after that taping, the virus came back with a vengeance. Now, I want to tell you something. I knew that there was something still in there because in the th- in the week and a half or the week that I had the flu at the beginning of September, not beginning of the month, uh, my strength came back and everything. And I had I went to go shopping the day that I felt good. Then we did the taping the next day, and then the next day it, it came back like really bad. But I could feel something in my chest. It wasn't like I felt 100%. I felt that there was something there. It was the devil. And I knew that it was coming back. It did. Not only did it come back, it was worse than before. And I had a hard time moving, let alone getting up. Let alone, what will I do once I get up? It was like the worst virus I have ever had. I think ever had by a long shot. But I am here. I'm alive. And I'm ready to rock your socks off. If you're wearing socks. If you're a person who doesn't wear socks. We'll have to rock something else off. (laughs) (laughs) Hold your gaunch or your panties because those may get rocked. Those will go next. It's probably a small garment. <laughs> so, uh, Rob, how was your last two weeks been? I, I got a wrestling match with uh, an orangutan. And, uh, Why don't you just say the truth? Why don't you just say what happened instead of making up stuff that's both, one, not funny, and two, not funny? You, as- <laughs> you ascribe me as having more memory than I actually have. Well, In order for me to remember what happened the past few weeks, I'd have to have something interesting happen that I memorized. 
But as it turns out, you don't out, have to be interesting. I just day. told about the fucking flu. <laughs> you think that's interesting? Okay. I just okay. told okay. about how I had the flu. Why don't you just say, "Listen, I didn't do too much these last two weeks. I'm sorry. Yes, I there. wish I did, but I didn't." Stop talking about how this guy brought you in and had an orangutan, and all of a sudden you went on the road for two weeks. Shut the hell up. And and be truthful to our audience. That's all they want. You know what they want, Rob? They want the truth. A little truth. <laughs> Whip a little truth on them. Okay. <laughs> Yesterday morning, I saw Getty Lee. There. Done. Truth. He was driving a little old white Datsun pickup truck. <laughs> that's actually, that's <laughs> actually in Rob's mind, the truth. It is. Because I heard the story today. So... <laughs> Um, if you guys are going, oh, he told another story. You know, According to Rob's head, he did not. Every time that occurs, it's because you forgot to put a tab in. No, I, that's, that's the question I ask every episode. I haven't even given the floor to you for two minutes so I can find a tab. Oh, jeez. Oh, it's going to be a long one tonight. No people settle in. You'll uh, open it's up another drink. It's going to be a long Get Rob your pack episode. of smokes in your ashtray and just get settled in. Oh, how people, oh, geez. You know, people don't like you. They don't. I, I get so much email about how can I kill that man? Why don't we get rid of him? <laughs> how can we rid ourselves of this sidekick? <laughs> they do. It's funny. Anyways, it's time for odds and ends. Lost time is not found again. And we have, I love, I love doing it. I'll do it again. It's time for odds and ends. Lost time is not found again. I don't see. I don't like when you join in because I did like it for a while until you started screwing up, and you're really screwing up today's show. Today is like Rob screwing it up day. That's what it is. I'm sticking it to the show. Yeah, sticking to the show, and I'll continue to stick it to the show until contract negotiations come to an end. Oh, the monkey? You still want the monkey written out of the contract? I want the monkey replacing me. <laughs> I got stuff to do on Wednesday nights. Oh, my God. Now everybody's at... See, now everybody's on the garden show. I know it. I know. <laughs> it came, it waned, it went. Oh, okay. We have some corrections and additions to make from our previous episode, which was our Carol King tapestry episode, remember? Yeah, I feel the earth. Move yes under my feet. You're so far. Uh, for best-selling albums of all time, I looked it up. I thought Tapestry was in the top ten, but it is actually number forty-two. Yeah, it's been replaced uh, over the past uh, few decades. Yeah, uh, it has. That's why it has. We had talked about it <laughs> on the last episode how, about how it doesn't have that uh, magnetism uh, that it, it used to have. To... And it has not. It has not only just been with popular culture, but with sales. Um, so it has jumped from being like the number one greatest selling album of all time to number forty-two, right between Bob Marley's "Legend" at number forty-one, the album that almost everybody has uh, from Bob Marley. It's, it's just amazing how many people, if you ask them. Do you have a Bob Marley record? And almost everybody says yes. And almost everybody of them says legend. Not me. And it was the first, I think, real... Uh, see, we're going way back again and, and wasting time. But it was the first record, whole record that I had ever listened to from Bob Marley that my friend had let me. And I said, wow. From first... This, and that doesn't mean much now because all these songs have been played in finatum on, on radio. 
And but at the time, I had never heard a lot of these songs that are that are now played on the radio, and it was like just from beginning to end, and it was like, holy smokes, this is amazing. This guy's all right. Have you heard Survival as your first record? Survival was, yeah, that's the one yeah. I went and bought. And going, we went completely off topic. And But the album that is right in back of Carol King is Phil Collins's No Jacket Required at number 43 best-selling album of all time. That's a good one. I like that one. Jesus. I know. You know what I, I do. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> Carol, I'm really sorry. Like... <laughs> Having to be so close to Phil Collins <laughs> like that. But at least you know where that smell is coming from. <laughs> Fuck, how does No Jack Required become the 43rd greatest selling of all time? That's just... Uh, oh, fuck, that, that is, pisses is, me off. It's not what I would expect to find in there. I, wouldn't ex- I would expect No Jack Required to be on like one of the lamest albums of the 80s type lists <laughs> or something like that. You know, or... Okay, I'm in a bad mood, so I'm not going to... I could do this. Yeah, I could... Be, uh, left under the bus. I could do this for a long time because I still got I still got <clears throat> some vial coming up here, so we got to save some. <laughs> oh, we do. If anybody hears it, I don't know if anybody... We got a, we got a, we got a kind of an electrical storm outside, so if you hear some rumbling, yeah. that's the... Uh, this isn't the insulated Winchester building anymore. No, this is uh, definitely... We're out in the field in Little Shack. We're out in the field with... Uh, uh, or underneath uh, the radio tower. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Another addition from last episode. I couldn't re- I couldn't remember the title, if anybody remembers, of the Eagles reunion studio album. They did. And it was titled Long Road Out of Eden from 2007. I think I said it was some crappy album with Eden in the title. So I wasn't really wrong. <laughs> I just wasn't specific. <laughs> I am in a bad mood today. And I am getting my sting out right now, okay? Getting everybody mad on today's show. I don't care if you're Eagles fans. If I get you mad, I don't give a shit because I don't like the Eagles. And if I'm getting Phil Collins uh, fans mad, why are you fans of nah. Phil Collins in the first place? What the hell's wrong with you? And second, you can be fans of Phil Collins in Genesis when all he, he did was, was Genesis, when all he did was drum. I have no, <laughs> I have no, no beef against that. Okay, yeah, man, I. That was real good. I that was I love when I do that. That's one of the best odds and ends you've ever did. When I can just just bitch all the time. There are some people who need to be unloaded upon. <laughs> yeah, they do. We're gonna unload a lot on the Eagles and and uh, oh, well, the Eagles. Sign. That was <laughs> you see. God is a big Eagles fan. Yeah, God loves <laughs> the Eagles, and we just got a big thunder crack right there. Enough of that, boys. But we're gonna. I'm gonna put the vial away because today we have another entry in Gary's top 30 songs of all time. Well, I hope you've been keeping track. I don't know. <laughs> I swear I don't. Maybe know. another 10 songs. I know. We'll count them up. See where we are. <coughs> if I cough once in a while, it's probably seriously going to take a probably a couple of a month or two. At least to get rid of my cough completely. It's one of those things one that of those I got. Lingering lung. Yeah, it's one of those shit. lingering lung things. So uh, excuse me if I do, but uh, I know that we're halfway through because I did count them. I, I I count where we are and then I don't mark it down and I just say, oh, I'll remember. And I don't. I think we're at number seventeen out of thirty. Okay. 
So we're we're half we're more than halfway through. Uh, these are songs that are timeless. I hate doing this every time, but it, it has, has to be, be done. done. Yeah, well, it has to be done. These are songs that are timeless, brilliant, can be played over and over again without getting old, and they're pretty darn good. They're so there. Also, it also can, not too shabby. It can be done. Yeah. <laughs> now, today and next week, we will be covering or a couple of American songbook tunes uh, from the American songbook uh, that were used in movies. Uh, it just happens that way. I decided to put these songs not together, but side by side in episodes. And this week is the Henry Mancini Johnny Mercer masterpiece, Moon River, from the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's, with uh, your buddy George Pappard. George Love Pappard George is your Pappard. friend. Yeah. yeah. You and George Pappard uh, did a movie together, didn't you? We did, and then uh, he went to all Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, when I think of George Pappard, I think of all Hollywood. Um, <laughs> idiot. Uh, <laughs> that was when he, he dyed his hair blonde. Uh, uh, Moon River is a song composed by Henry Mancini with lyrics by Johnny Mercer. It was originally performed by Audrey Hepburn in the 1961 movie Breakfast at Tiffany's. I love all versions that I have heard of, well, mainly three versions. <laughs> I think I've only heard three. I probably have heard like instrumental versions and stuff, but I love the three versions that I've heard and... Of course, there's the Andy Williams version, which... That's the one, Andy Williams. I really of. love. I just love that version. There's something about that song. There's something about the way the notes are put and the lyrics, which, to me, maybe not... To, we've got a real big store outside. It's starting to scare me. But we have... Uh, there's something about the words that sounds so sad, and it's very untypical of a of an American songbook type of song that is usually pretty happy or something. But it, it, to, to me, Moon River is, even though there's, is hope in the song, it, it, uh, I don't know. There's just something about it that gets to me. I, I, I like, I does, like, it's a deep does. song that is hidden. It sometimes, you know, how you kind of hide a, a deeper meaning or, or, or a depressing song with the lyrics that maybe you're trying to, Get around the. Oh, well, you're trying to express it in a way which um, uh, it is contrary to the lyrics. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a. Yeah, in a way, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, so it, you have this nice arrangement not to express, but you pick it up uh, by listening to it by the exactly. So you have this nice arrangement, and you're listening to Andy Williams' great voice, and you're th and you're listening to this incredible melody, and you're thinking you're not thinking too much about the lyrics, but the lyrics are pretty um, sad. Uh, I'm trying to remember how it is in the movie, and it's. Of course, the movie is sung by uh, my Audrey. favorite version, Audrey Hepburn, and she only she sings it outside on her like little porch thing her little in her apartment, and it's so sad. She sings it. She sings it beautifully, and she doesn't. I don't think sing the whole song from what I remember. She just sings like uh, a verse and a chorus, and it's very affecting. It's one of my favorite recordings, actually. It's just you can actually, if you put in Moon River, that will pop up. Her little version. It's one of the first things that pop up. It'll be the YouTube version of that song. Right there, the first thing. Listen to it. That's my favorite. I love the Andy Williams version. I also love Henry Mancini's instrumental version. 
because I just think that the music written for it is nothing that I've heard before or since. It's very extraordinary. It's it's not that it's revolutionary. It's just that the way that the notes are put, the chords that are put, uh, it sounds romantic. It doesn't sound romantic. It has a dark uh, minor key tone to it. It's uh, it's a very, it's a song that even as a little kid, I, I always was uh, attracted to it. And uh, I want to go over the lyrics because I just, uh, I, I just love the, the lyrical, and I think the lyrics and the kind of the music uh, go so well with it that it's what, it, what's really attracted me to the to the song. I'm just going to get the lyrics here. I'm going to ask Rob for a second to, uh, if he could just talk about what Moon River means to him while I find the, the lyrics to the song. What does Moon What does Moon River mean to you when you listen to it, Rob? Moon River is a happy journey into <laughs> the North. Shut the fuck up. Okay. <laughs> I was I was a joy in school, especially for book reports. <laughs> nice journey up the river <laughs> with my pal as we go on a riverboat. Moonlit night. <laughs> we're both paddling in the moonlight. Okay, we're gonna try and steer this back. Okay, so uh, it goes like Moon River, wider than a mile. I'm crossing you in style someday. Like, uh, that's, I'm crossing you, which means Dreams. it's a dream. Oh. It's a dream of going on that river. I'm not there yet. I'm not living the life I want to lead. But someday I want to get, it's like that over the rainbow, you know, yeah. where you want to get where you're at, but you're not there. Uh, Moon River signifies the dream maker. You're a heartbreaker. Wherever you're going, I'm going your way. But that doesn't mean I'm there. That just means I'm always chasing. I'm always chasing the dream that I never get. It is a very longing and sad song when you think of it. Because Audrey Hepburn, as Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's, plays a hooker. And she doesn't have much high-class hooker, but a hooker nonetheless who doesn't have a great future. And that's all she's banking on is her dreams of a great future. So it's kind of sad. I mean, it's very sad when you think about it. And then the only other verse is uh, two drifters off to see the world. There's such a lot of world to see. Uh, that's kind of like, I think, a little bit putting in a nice couple of lines to kind of hide the, to the, hide undertones. The, the undertones of the songs. We're after the same rainbow's end, waiting. See, and again, we're after the same hope that really is not much of a hope. And, uh, and of course, the famous line, because everybody says, what's my Huckleberry friend? Well, Huckleberry friend is Huckleberry Finn. It's like Tom Sawyer and his friend Huckleberry Finn searching so for Huckleberry something. Huckleberry friend to be like Tom Sawyer's friend Huckleberry Finn. Right. So, and I really love that because it's very, it gets to me when he says my, when she sings or Andy Williams sings, my Huckleberry friend, Moon River and me, well, actually, yeah. Uh, I don't know if the friend is an actual friend or if the friend is Moon River because it's in uh, apostrophe. That gives me a mental sure. picture of running away. <laughs> but I love that, yeah, because I get that mental picture of running away. I get that mental picture of my Huckleberry friend, like, 
It's almost a sad friend. uh, It's almost a sad friend, though. It's almost like a friend that's never. Yeah, a friend that doesn't (laughs) exist, but you're there, and you're almost out of reach. The friend you would have in the world you'd like to live in. Yes, the Moon River and and me. I find that very sad. I don't know why, but even the words Moon River and me, and then the song ends is is almost a resignation of it's not going to happen. But I can still dream. You can never take away my my dreams. But you know, yeah, it's when you realize that even uh, those dreams you had uh, may not be coming true. Uh, exactly. That's what I get from this song: is the hope of the dream. But there's also in the music and the feeling in the song that the dream is not going to come true. Once you realize it really is no longer possible. Yes, that's what the last line symbolizes to me. It may symbolize a whole different thing to other people, especially the older generation where everything they tried to make something sunny. But we come from more of a realistic generation. Yeah, it was the Vietnam War changed everything. Well, there was no Vietnam War yet, but good for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's my theory. <laughs> Going down that river. I'm not uh, sticking with it, and I'm not abandoning it. <laughs> what do you think of this song? Well, I like it that we're traveling and we're on the river. That's but, kinda oh, nice. it's kind of a lot of waves, I tell you. If the moon's out, it must be nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> Who travels yes. on a river at night? If, if anybody wonders why I'm the host and he's the second banana, uh, I mean, that this was a perfect encapsulation <laughs> right here. I'm an idea guy. And not good ideas either. No, he's he's more of a, I need him here, and that's about it. So, <laughs> I, I make the machine go and do the, the bit of the recording there. So next week, I've got another song, which is... Oh God, I love this next song. I'm not going to tell you what it is. It's a good. But it's along the same lines of, of Moon River, and it goes way back to 1930, actually. Uh, and we're going to talk about that next week. We're coming to the last top ten. I kind of like to have the top 30, even though it's starting to get on my nerves because it seems like we've been doing it for yeah, five 30, years. Yeah, 30, you went to you went, <laughs> went chasing the moon. Man. But it's a good, like, if I can't think of a theme, I could just go, oh, I'll just put hey, one of my favorite songs, songs in there. Yeah. And we'll talk well, about it. Call the show. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, today, oh, you know what I should do, Rob? What? Rob. I should actually uh, put up that, Rob. <laughs> I should thing. actually put up that uh, tab. I forgot what the tab. Oh yeah, yeah. There's that tab, the tab that I was supposed to talk about. I'm going to say this first before we, before I hand over the mic. Now we could put this on pause and then come back when I have found it, but we don't like to do that. We try to make this show as realistic as possible. So uh, I'm going to hand the microphone over to Rob for a minute or two. Now he's not going to talk like talk like a stupid idiot, are you? You're just going to talk to them. Maybe talk to them about how you feel emotionally about the knack. <laughs> what the knack means to you in your personal life. So today, <laughs> sorry. So today we will be reviewing in our first episode on, <laughs> on power pop music in the late 1970s. I apologize. The LA, I, see, it's my own fault, my own yes. joke. <laughs> yes, the, this is not the mushrooms kicking. <laughs> is the, in the late 1970s, the LA band The Knack and their 1979 debut album, Get the Knack. Oh no, Get Knack. the Knack. <laughs> Like, See, I'm, I should it, be trying. I should be trying not to make myself laugh, and then I do that. Get the knack. You got to show But it to first, you. as I have written in my script, 
What is Power Pop? That's such a good question. I'm going to ask Rob what he thinks Power Pop is. Okay. The acronym for Power Pop <laughs> is PP. <laughs> so tonight we'll be discussing PP. <laughs> I, I haven't first, found I, it yet, Rob, so I'm like, like, like a sensible human being. I, I, I first heard of Power Pop 31 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it's a thing Gary has not just made up. So You've never heard of Power Pop before? Never heard of Seriously? Power Pop. Nope, never have. Wow. That's a new expression for me. Okay. I've heard of a lot of different musical styles, but Power Pop didn't, uh, didn't uh, register. Okay, me. well, Power Pop is a form of pop rock. Now, it's based on the early music of bands such as The Who, uh, The Beatles, The Beach Boys, uh, The Birds. Kind of like that first generation of English invasion bands mixed in with the bands that were influenced by the English invasion bands like The Birds. Uh, it originated in the 60s, of course, blah, blah, blah. Now, the genre typically incorporates melodic hooks, pop music, vocal harmonies. Uh, an energetic performance, very upbeat and happy sounding music underpinned by a sense of yearning, longing or despair. In other words, it's kind of pop music, but with distortion. Okay. Right. And it's not, it's pop music, uh, it's like upbeat, upbeat pop music, like, uh, but with an edge. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think I can kind of wrap my head around that. If you think a lot about the birds, uh, you know, a song like I Feel a Whole Lot Better When You're Gone, stuff like that, uh, where it has, you know, the guitars playing and they, they're singing about a happy thing. And uh, the best genre of power pop that I can come up with, and it's really the heyday of power pop, is the early 1970s or to the mid 1970s when you had groups like Badfinger, uh, the Raspberries, love the Raspberries. Yeah. We will be covering these bands when we do Power Pop in the early 70s. Uh, Todd Rundgren, uh, Big Star, which is a legendary band now but sold no copies when they existed. But all three of their albums are listed as uh, in the top uh, albums of all time. Uh, it just incorporated a lot of new wave, uh, punk, pub rock. It, it had, it, it, it was just, I don't know. Um, this was like, it reminded me of punk, but it was too clean to be punk. Too clean. It was too clean. It was too clean to be punk. It was a lot more new wave-ish. Yeah. And but it wasn't I think the to be best example to me, if I can think, other than like the raspberries, although some people might say, I don't know the raspberries, and I'd say, well, then I'd you say, I'm going to kick you in the balls. Then, for yeah, I was going to say that you should. Uh, and Badfinger is, to me, is Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick, if you listen to the early Cheap Trick, especially like Budokan and uh, Surrender and I Want You to Want Me, all those early songs and Dream Police, that's power pop. That's, that's, Popish songs, but with a real rock and roll type bent to it, and Cheap Trick really personified to me the Romantics, who had who had a hit with "What I Like About You" yeah, when yeah, the whole was tied. That's power pop. Nick Lowe with "Cruel to Be Kind," all of Dave Edmonds stuff. So many bands, but it wasn't. It's a 
power pop band in a way is like Oasis. Uh, well, that would become. Of course, they're called Britpop, but if they existed in the seventies, Oasis would be a power pop. pop band. Yes. Yeah. Does people? Oh, sorry, I yelled. Do people now understand what power pop is? If you didn't, I hope you all do. Um, I'm going to say I do, just to keep things flowing. No, well, do you? Uh, can I understand it? Yeah, more or less. Okay. It's not that hard to understand. It's kind of like not uh, keyboard music. It's it's uh, it's pop, sunny pop. It doesn't have to be sunny pop music, but most of the time it's sunny pop music with with a rock and roll bent. Okay, people. And if you ask any more questions, I'll say, "What? Weren't you listening? <laughs> Seriously, weren't you listening?" Okay. They were listening. They know. They know. They know. These these, these kids nowadays, they more than know the, whatever. So <laughs> there you go. Done. You know what? You know what? They forget it. Uh, <laughs> now the knack, the knack was one of the first of the late, the second incarnation of the power pop. Power pop existed very strongly from like 1971 to about 75 or so. Uh, kind of uh, faded into the background when punk rock came and disco came. And it wasn't real popular for a while. You had a band like Dwight Twilly who would get on. I wonder if anybody hears all the, all the rumbling of the thunder and everything in the background. But it's kind of cool. It's kind of scary. It's kind of cool. <laughs> um, and the Knack were one of the first bands uh, formed in 1978 uh, in this second wave of Power Pop, which in some ways uh, incorporated New Wave which made it much more popular for people because you could latch on to the new wave thing and everything. But the Knack were actually a, a seasoned veterans before they formed in 1978. Doug Feger, had, who was the uh, singer, uh, rhythm guitarist, and leader of the Knack, had already recorded uh, an album when he was in 19... Uh, he recorded two albums actually in, in 1970 and 71 with a band called what, Rob? You know the band. Uh, you know, I read the band today and I forgot. Uh, you remember they were uh, they were kind of a, a, a psychedelic band. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just buying strawberry time. Strawberry alarm, alarm clock. Just uh, buying time to tell. A band called Sky. And Sky recorded two albums for RCA Records in 1970 and 1971. So Doug Feger, by 1978, was a pretty seasoned individual when it uh, came to rock and roll. And so the other guys, Bruce Gary, who unfortunately uh, passed about 15 years ago, has always been one of my favorite drummers. He's a great drummer. Oops, I marked up. I marked up my glasses. <laughs> I went okay. like this, and I—you can't see what I'm doing because yeah, obviously you can't see. Uh, but I just—I just kind of pushed my glasses up and just put a big handprint on my glasses. <laughs> Bruce Gary is—I don't know—he's just an incredible guitar player. If you—if you hear the album "Get the Knack" or anything by the Knack, uh, he just—he just plays amazing drums. Uh, unfortunately, he um, uh, died from uh, cancer, I think, in uh, 2006. I even remember the, the day he died because I was thinking, man, he was just starting to, you know, he's getting all these gigs again. He was, he was, he was 
already in the scene by 1978. Bruce Gary was very well known for his drumming. He played with uh, Albert Collins, the great blues musician. He played with, uh, he toured with Jack Bruce and Mick Taylor and uh, your friend, uh, uh, Carla Blay. Oh, Carla Blay, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, it seems like Carla Blay comes up all the time and it's like... She is quirky. Yeah. Uh, Dr. John he played with. He was a very well-known... Uh, uh, veteran type uh, veteran type person drummer, by right? the time Doug Figure asked him to join the NAC in 1978 and you also had Prescott Niles a great uh, bass player uh, if you hear this album you will hear how not only solid he is on this album but also kind of very, there, very uh, imaginative in his playing yeah. didn't you think I'm asking Rob because Rob knows bass, and I found it yeah, very that imaginative. Yeah, would be some cool playing. and fun stuff to play. Yeah, he like. plays. You know what? That's exactly <laughs> yeah. what it is. He plays songs that sound. He plays his bass lines like very cool and. Uh, I mean, they're really good bass lines. Yeah, but uh, they, they, they sound like they're fun to play. I normally I have aversion to playing a repeating line, but. Uh, uh, he's got some good stuff there. No, he was. You can definitely tell. I something I couldn't tell when I listened to this album. That, that, that really struck me about the musicianship on this album. It's like these guys, uh, they're good. Yeah, it's just this, like another case of the Sex Pistols, where one guy recorded most of the tracks, and but no, this is like all. all yeah, the these guys, these guys are in their mm -hmm. are in their mid to late twenties, and they're they they know their instruments. So that's what I'm trying to get across. Is that unlike when they came out and nobody had heard of them, everybody just thought they were young guys in their early 20s. These guys were seasoned professionals. These guys knew what they were doing. These guys were good at what they did, either on their instruments or songwriting or whatever. And I, I can't uh, not mention, uh, I hope I say this right, Burton Avera, who plays uh, lead guitar he, and, and writes half the songs with Doug Feger. Uh, and... Uh, we're going to talk about his guitar playing on My Sharona, which has one of the greatest, <laughs> greatest solos ever. That is the ever. perfect guitar solo. One of the most perfect <laughs> guitar solos ever. I'm not calling it the greatest, ever. but I am calling it perfect. No, no, I agree with you. I don't think it's 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 like the greatest guitar solo I'm, ever, I'm, but I do think it is one of the greatest guitar solos on a top 40 song you're yeah. ever going to hear. And there isn't one wrong note it just, on it. It just goes from perfect to better, to better, <laughs> to better, to better, to climax. Yeah, that's perfect build to get up there. And you're expecting me, he's going to stumble and play something I don't like somewhere, but he never does. Exactly. Uh, I just, uh, sorry, I, had, I was just reading about Bruce Gary. <laughs> I miss Bruce Gary. He's such a great guy and a great drummer. Um, the Knack the were very popular. And we're going to talk about this album because it's a very controversial album. And if you weren't around in 1979 or realized there was a Knack backlash. You didn't realize <laughs> the whole thing that, and I was there. It was... It was from love and hate overnight, but we're going to get to that in a second. When the Knack started, they played all the time. They played all the. They played so many gigs on Sunset Strip. They played like seven nights a week. They got this huge following. People like Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty and Ray Manzarek would would go up on stage with them. They were like the band. Everybody said, "When this band is going to get signed? How? Why is this band not signed? They're incredible." And they eventually, of course, did get signed. And they got this 
they were the next big thing. They got signed. They got this huge bonus. And then they recorded uh, their first album. They went right in and recorded their first album. Now, the thing with their album is that they did what we wanted to do with our first album, <laughs> was they just went in and recorded it. They did it on, like, they had all the money in the world from Capitol Records. And uh, they just kind of decided, uh, you know what, we don't, we're going to take your money for a bonus to do this album, but we're going to do it really, we're going to do it like our, like our stage act. We're just going to set up, we're going to plug in our amps, and we're going to play and I remember that Muddy Waters album where they recorded. Yes, exactly. And, uh, exactly. Wow. This album was recorded in just two weeks. I, I just want to point out that I had wanted to record our debut album in two weeks, <laughs> just like they did. I'm not trying to make comparisons. And uh, they only did it at for $18,000. Now, this is, of course, recording in a top-notch yeah, studio uh, <laughs> for like who knows how much an hour. So $18,000 is really cheap. Uh, the only difference between their recording and our recording was they had uh, a record company behind them that said, yeah, do it the way you want. We had a lot of, we had a person that was our engineer who didn't want us to do anything <laughs> that we wanted to do. This is what we wanted to do. We wanted to do an album like the Knack. And we tried to explain to him, not exactly the, the we never explained the knack, no, but we wanted to explain, free we and, always uh, said we wanted to do it like the Beatles did with their first album where they did it in one day. Yeah. Said we don't want to do it in one day, but we just want to set up and play. And I'm telling you, you say that to an engineer yeah. in, the, in the mid 1980s, Record like and it's like you're a Martian because they say <laughs> nobody, nobody records that ancient way anymore. And it's anyway, wrong. It used to be right because of all those good recordings that came out of it, but now it's wrong. Now it's wrong. It's exactly what he said, and uh, it turned out disastrous for everybody yeah. concerned. But we're talking about the Knack. Now the Knack did it. They they recorded their album in two weeks, and then. Okay, this is where it gets all complicated. This is where it gets really strange. The album hits in June 1979. Now, the album, before the album hits, one of the greatest singles of all time gets released called My Sharona. And I'm telling you, I have never in my life seen people so gripped by a song it's like they had never heard anything like that before and i do remember the first time i heard my sharona on radio i remember it was the summer of 1979 just starting and my parents were driving me and my brother out to the lake which was only like 45 minutes away and this song came on the radio, and I said, what the fuck? This is joyous rock and roll. Like, I've... And of course, it was cut down. You didn't get the guitar you didn't solo, get the solo on it on the radio. and all that. But still, it was like three and a half minutes of, what the fuck? Like, this is, this is what rock and roll is, is coming to. I love it. This is what rock and roll is supposed to be. You already had New Wave. Now you had this coming on with the power pop. And it was like, oh my God. And everybody couldn't get enough of it. And then the album was album was released and it sold by the bundle. Just, just like huge. And everybody was like, oh, the knack there. They're so incredible. And the song, nobody can get enough of it. It was just like playing all the time. I mean, you hear my Sharona and you're dancing. 
<laughs> I don't care who you are. You're like, fuck, that's why I like rock and roll. If you got to tell me why I like rock and roll, Great Balls of Fire, uh, you know, Johnny Be Good, My Sharona is, is right up there to me. It's it just makes me want to throw things. And in a good way, it makes me want to dance. It makes me want to throw things. It makes me say, that's why I love rock it's and roll. It's such a weird, primitive, punky kind of rhythm. It's contrary to um, uh, the highly produced stuff that was coming out. That, oh, no, don't, that's don't, why it don't, blew don't, me don't, away. Don't, that's why it blew don't, so don't, many don't, people don't, away. Don't, don't, was just that. Nobody it's has heard that simple. in the song. It's too simple. And yet it doesn't <laughs> sound simple. It doesn't sound, at least to my ears, and I think a lot of people's ears in 1979, it's like, how do they do that? And yet it's so <laughs> infectious. And it's not aggravating infectious because I hear that song now and I'm jumping all over the place again. It has to be the full version. But when it's the full version... I'm like, holy fuck, this is one of the greatest rock and roll singles ever. So the album, like I said, the album came out, sold so many copies. Then, near the end of summer, a lot of people are pissed off. Because a lot of people now, twofold. This album has sold a lot of copies. And threefold, actually. Three things. They didn't like what, what musicians and people in the industry didn't like was the amount of money being spent by capital to break this band. It was it was an over-commercialization. Fourfold. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, tell no, you, but... I'll tell you four things that happened all in a row that Nobody really... expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> really pissed everybody off. One was the money being spent. It seemed like Capital was spending all their money and instead of spreading it out to a whole bunch of bands were... It was just a gimmick to to get this band to sell as many copies as possible. Other bands hated it. That was just part one. Part two was the Beatles. Not only was the album called Get the Knack, very similar to Meet the Beatles. It also was a take on the movie The Knack and How to Get It, which was R Richard Lester's oh, yeah. next movie. When I was looking up the um, um, uh, the Knack on the, uh, the internet, that's one of the things that came up right. as a movie. Get the, uh, the, the knack, knack and how, and how to get it. it, and of course the album is called Get the Knack, which was the movie right after a hard day's night. Uh, people, rightly so, associated with all oh, Beatles. Then they had the cover shot, which looked like the Meet the Beatles cover. Then they had the back cover, which looked like the band, all all in ties and everything with their instruments, looking like they're on the set of Hard Day's Night, and didn't bother fans too much at the beginning but after the knack started getting played and played and played on the radio they're going like are, are these are they just using the beatles image to to get ahead that pissed a lot of people off they yeah see i find that odd i think it's just kind of a, a it, you know strangely them. enough it wasn't odd back then it really wasn't. It was a. It was a legitimate complaint. I find it odd now and stupid, because there are so many bands that use yeah. the Beatles on their. They take off their Abbey Road cover all the time, and they do this and that, and it seems to be all right. But the Knack did it, and they sold copies, so everybody thought that they're appropriating the Beatles to sell records. It was a big thing. You think it's not? It was back then. Third. 
they were a very egotistical band. <laughs> Doug Feger, especially, will admit, unfortunately, Doug Feger is no longer with us, which is sad. He was a very talented songwriter. But he uh, let let all this get to him, and he the uh, they were known as a cocky, arrogant band, which Doug Feger will admit he was at that point. And they didn't do any interviews. Uh, so now you got the the bands Even against them. The press. You've got the press against oh. them now uh, for those that reason and because of them spending so much money. Like all these reasons. Like, oh, and they're just taking off the Beatles to get more album sales. And then the fourth reason is the lyrics, which are, if you really <laughs> decipher them, are extremely misogynistic. Now, the reason that they're... It, it, it bugs me because is that if this was coming from a band that was like a lot of English invasion bands that were 19, 20 years old, very young. Yeah. The Beatles, like George Harrison, when they recorded Love Me Do, was only 19 years old. You know, uh, they were all very young bands and they came up. This is not a young band and they're not. And yet they're talking about. Sounds like sometimes. Uh. High school teenage girls, and sometimes they're talking about younger teenage romance and lust. I found the lust refreshing. I like the lust, um, but uh, yeah, 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 I was thinking of the, the song. It's, I'm sorry, it's creepy. I didn't find it. I found it. <laughs> My I found it misogynistic back in 1979, but I find it more offensive now because I realize now that these are guys in their late 20s talking about 15, 14-year-old girls. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. You find something you like in life, you pursue it. Now, My dad liked to golf. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. <laughs> but how do you put yourself in a position? Now, where... we're not... You're not going to find two people that agree more about you're allowed to say anything you want. But whatever you say is going to have a backlash, either good or bad. So we don't believe anything in censorship. But I, I do believe that if you're going to put some of that terrible attitudes out there, you are also ripe to get uh, the backlash to it. I view these as character songs. Yeah, but Rob, I'm, I'm sorry. These are misogynistic songs. And so, not all of them. I'm just saying one or two songs are very misogynistic very like oh why don't you put out or else you're a bitch i mean i just i just i just dislike them their yeah. their content more i'll tell you right now that and that, i'm not that saying was they my shouldn't one problem with the albums lyrically it didn't grab me like there's a bunch of okay. subject matter that didn't i we are agreed that we're we're we we believe you can say anything you want yes but the reaction to it is also justified yeah Granted, but the, I felt that the, 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 the words used and the, uh, the the ideas expressed were appropriate for these songs. They were appropriate for the uh, the character. Yeah, of the song. I agree with that. But you're also talking about these these are not these are not young guys. Uh, I'm I'm just <laughs> sorry, and I don't like I don't like the way they're talk. I don't know. Uh, yeah, we're we're like gonna we're gonna come across. They're pretending to be teenagers, almost. Uh, yes, they're <laughs> pretending to be teenagers, and also they're not even talking to the way 
the girls did when I was 14. I'm sorry. I, I never I never thought of them like that. No, I never thought of them as just I of, never um, uh, put them in this kind of advanced language before. Like uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't look at them this that was negatively. Not, this was not stuff that I'd heard from other guys at school or anything like that. No, I mean, guys would say, oh, she's good looking, but they never went up to her and said, you better put... You know what this sounds like to me when I listen to their songs? Some of their songs... Because uh, I actually like this album, but there are a couple songs which really bug me uh, lyrically, is that they come off as college guys, preppy college guys talking about the girl that just wouldn't give out <laughs> the, the night before. Talk. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, she, yeah, I had a date with Barbara and Barbara wouldn't put out, so she's a real bitch. That's what bugs me. That's what I got from a couple of these songs, except they're not college boys. You put that a little bit younger and you make these college boys into 16-year-old high school students. And they're talking about 14-year-olds as, why don't you just give it up? I've been trying so hard to, to impress you and to do things. Why don't you just give it up? And I'm telling you, when I read those lyrics and listened to this album this last, well, two weeks because I was sick... Um, it hit me a lot more than when I was 14 because I didn't know a lot about, you know, a lot about when I first, 13. I, I was just, I yeah. just turned 13 when this album came out. And even some of the things they said when I had just turned 13 bugged me, but they didn't bug me as much as when I became a, a, a knowledgeable human being yeah. as, as an adult well, and realized holy smoke, some of this stuff is extremely offensive. You have the right to say it, but <laughs> I, I also have the right to say, grow up a little bit. Like, they didn't use this kind of talk in, in, the, in the British invasion days when they were talking about the same thing, but they sanitized it a lot. No, uh, that was a, they, they, there was more of an edge on this one, that's for sure. There is more of an edge, and it's almost, it, they shoot themselves in the foot. These are great songs. What the fuck are they doing? Like, seriously, like, and everything that they chose, why did you have to go so full bore with the Beatles thing? Why did you have to put these songs in such a bad light for women? Are you actually like that? Well, then I understand. <laughs> like, why Why are you no. sabotaging everything that you do? Because this is a great album. This could have been a great band. But they never, they were, I'm telling you, they were cascaded so bad. That by the time their second album came, which was worse as far as the... They didn't learn any lessons. <laughs> their songs were... The, the album no, was called... They learned a lesson. Uh, the two songs that had the uh, the lyrics which uh, shocked people the most were the ones that got played. So do more of that. Yeah, but the good girls don't got censored. And we only heard the censored version. We didn't hear the album. We only heard the single version on the one we listened to. The censor version had fuck in it and it had it in a very bad way. And so why can't I fuck you? And it's like, what the, who the, what kind of, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. And then they get another chance. It's like, okay, like you, you have actually have bands going out with their nuke the knack, nuke the knack shirts, which were actually very popular in 1970. <laughs> they were very popular. The knack was as, uh, what's that Canadian band? That people hate. Oh, that could be a bunch of them. The one that everybody hates. That was as bad as the knack was. Everybody hated them. Everybody loved the knack for like three months and then hated the knack. I'm sorry. Everybody knows about the band. 
from Hannah Alberta. I can't remember. Oh, um, Nickelback. Nickelback. Yeah. They were as poison as Nickelback is, if not worse. And then they kind of got a second chance in 1980. They they released their second album. So what the fuck do they do? They release an album called But the Little Girls Understand, <laughs> which is taken from the Willie Dixon song, of course, A Backdoor Man, made popular by The Doors, which is um, But the Little Girls Understand about being done in the back door <laughs> back door oh piece. yeah how fucking stupid are you like really you're trying to ingratiate yourself by doing that and then on the cover of but the little girls understand they actually have a picture of sharona uh doug figure's girlfriend who my sharona is based on but she looks like she's 13 or 14 years old and she's looking at the stage because you can see a microphone stand she's looking at the stage like I like to suck your cock. <laughs> An impressionable young groupie. Yes. Very well put, Rob. And it's like, that was it. They were done. And no matter... I remember when their third album came out uh, called Round Trip, uh, I think in 1982, nobody wanted anything to do with them. It didn't matter if they, if they made Sgt. Pepper's. They were blackballed. They were absolutely done. They were done. Uh, they did release a few albums after that. They got back together. They had their cult following, of course, with the fans who stood them, but they were done. They could have been a huge band. They had the talent. They had the players. Um, you could not predict a band doing as many wrong things as they did. Whether you agree with it or not, uh, they did wrong things. Um, yeah, some of the songs, but some of the songs are not offensive. They're not, but some of the songs are really. I want to talk about the album. Oh, we're so over time because <laughs> I told you it was a complicated <laughs> record, and it was a, and it was. There's many stories about this record than just the music, but let's talk about the record first of all. Both sides start off so incredibly strong. I do. Uh, the song, the album starts off with "Let Him Out." which uh, is one of the few songs not about girls. It's actually about... It reminds me... It, in fact, it's a carbon copy in a good way. I'm not saying that they copied it, but it sounds just like the first song on a Cheap Trick album. You know, like, Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. This song sounds like Cheap Trick, and you're thinking that this band is going to blow your socks off or your panties, depending on if you have socks yeah we'll do what we're wearing socks <laughs> great song uh, you know uh, great rock and roll song great song to start an album uh, they go right into it without any uh, break or anything into one of my favorite songs on the album uh, Your Number or Your Name which is actually not sexist at all it was actually a very great little rock and roll type song uh, also goes into another song, which is just fantastic, uh, Oterra, which is a little bit simplistic in its lyrics, but is damn catchy as hell. Great album. I remember thinking uh, when I first heard this album, like, holy shit, this thing is just great. Uh, She's So Selfish is uh, pretty much, uh, he's so misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> she won't put out uh, she's so selfish yes uh, sorry <laughs> I just can't a character I, song no matter what I think about the not music or anything not a character you like but a character song exactly not a character exactly you could look at it at a different point of view than I did and say mm -hmm. 
I'm saying anybody and say, you know what? It's I a don't character. Like this guy, I out no, don't like this guy. Not the like, not yeah. the singer, but the guy, which is kind of how you should. But when it starts to permeate so many songs, you start thinking, what the fuck are these guys? Yeah. And and yeah. so it turned me off. So you said, I like that. I love. And then there's kind of like almost just Doug Figure on guitar, which is really nice. With maybe tonight. Very nice song. That one, uh, the, if I left the room and came into the room and forgot what I was doing, I'd, I'd get the crazy feeling that the, it was Queen playing because yeah. of the, uh, uh, the way the, the, the vocals were used and written. Uh, it is a very Queen-like song. Very nicely done. Very nicely sung by yeah. Doug Feger. Very, very nice song. Uh, actually, very respectful. Not one of the not one of the one of the better lyrical songs. Then we get to the crux of the whole thing. As the as the album as the first side ends with good girls don't yeah but I do um, is that one you as a father would want to see your teenage daughter singing <laughs> I'm not even gonna talk it's not even it's actually a very catchy song and musically and melodically is excellent that uh, the, the first I won't talk about it anymore than that because I find it extremely offensive got that first um, uh, line that comes in I will talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> That first line that comes in on the uh, the the verses, I mean the choruses sound normal when you sing it, but the, the the verses have it sounds like a groan uh, the way the melody goes, and uh, the vocal quality it's somewhere between uh, uh, John Wayne and Johnny Cash. <laughs> He's even got that warble in his voice a bit. He wrote it. He wrote it. Uh, Thinking of Johnny Cash. By Johnny Cash. Yeah, okay, he did. Yeah, he did. He wanted it to sound like a Johnny Cash song. He did. It does. It has a bit of that. Uh, I'm Johnny glad Cash you caught flavor. that because that is true. <laughs> That's. I'm not making that up. He did write it as a Johnny Cash type song. Very good, Rob. But no, this is extremely catchy. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is. And this, there's there's a reason why this song went up the charts. Um, yeah, that's all I had to and say. And yeah, well, I'm not going to say anything else about it. I find it offensive, and I don't want to talk about it. But you're right, musically and melodically, it's 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 an excellent song. Well, we already talked about My Sharona. I just want to say the drumming throughout this album, especially on My Sharona by Bruce Gary, is fantastic, uh, stupendous, everything else. And this solo on My Sharona, which I know we talked about, but it deserves to be said again, it's one of the greatest solos on a top 40 song ever yeah it is just <laughs> it is just a, a solo if i could do one solo, swear to god i swear to god if i could do one solo because i'm not a big i don't like doing solos and i just it just doesn't attract me but if i could do one solo this would be it because it is not only melodic and it's just it's just it's ripping, ripping. it's just it ripping rips. it just rips <laughs> from the first note to the end, and it just makes you just yeah. want to yell out at the end of it, I love fucking rock and roll. <laughs> and this is why this solo is just, it is just to me, yeah, you're right. Rob's right. It's not the greatest solo of all the time, but it is one of the greatest compact solos of all time. And to put that in an album that doesn't have that type of, radical break in any of the songs they're yeah. pretty straightforward to have this song with such uh, almost going into a different tune into the nothing middle nothing else on the album that was like this yes exactly that's why I also love mm-hmm. that part just the whole break part alone I love it because it's almost uh, a musical interlude in the middle of the song <laughs> and like a separate musical almost putting in a little jam thing in the middle of the song yeah. except it's well done 
I wish they would have done that more, but I'm glad they did it on this. Fantastic solo. One of the greatest singles ever in rock and roll history, I'm telling you. Heartbeat, love it. It's an old Buddy Holly song. The way they arranged it, Doug Feger arranged it, fantastic. Again, just rocks. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a couple of songs, which, which uh, I'm not, yeah. They come, they go. They, actually, the rest, actually, the rest of the album um, kind of doesn't live up to the first uh, eight songs. The last four uh, don't do too much for me. Uh, that's what the little girls do is extremely offensive. I'm sorry, it is. I'm I'm as liberal as anybody, but I'm sorry. These I will I, not I will not stand for for people downgrading. Uh, women as just sex objects and nothing more. I don't take them that seriously. I view them as a little spot in history where uh, this was a particular type of guy that existed. Okay. I'm well, a... then don't do them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, if you don't feel, if the person doesn't feel like, unfortunately, Doug Figure's gone, but I'm just saying, like, you know, did they do these songs uh, all the time before he passed away and the knack disbanded? I'm, saying, I'm probably going to say, yeah. So, I don't, th yes, it is another guy, but the guy doesn't have to act like, why is the guy acting the same jerkish way all the time? Or oh, the same character in all these songs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, that's a bit overplayed there. That's a bit. Uh... Uh, <laughs> can't the guy be nice once in a while? Okay, uh, so that's that's my uh, view. This is a solid, this is, this is such a, this is such, it's also a great definition of power pop. Okay. This is. Along with Cheap Trick uh, in the late 70s, you can't get more of an example of what Power Pop is than Get the Knack. I really like this album. When it first came out, my brother bought it almost immediately because everybody bought a copy of Get the Knack. Trust me. In the summer of 79, anybody who liked rock and roll bought Get the Knack. Loved it. He loved it until the backlash and then he sold it. Because <laughs> I think he realized that, no, I don't, even he didn't like what was going on. And, and uh, it was really a big thing. Uh, people, people may laugh and say, I, know, I don't understand. I, I, I got to remember stuff like this. I mean, if there's ever a time mm. that uh, I get successful, I need to be fired. <laughs> I got to remember how That's to do what it. it's like. It's like being fired. It's like people saying, man, these songs are catchy. And then three months later, what did he say? <laughs> Yeah, I didn't notice that three months ago. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I think it's such a solid record. Um, everything discarded. I I feel the same. This is a, this is the way that I'm feeling about a lot of the records, the ones that I've listened to so far uh, for this power pop section that I've I've heard. Like next week record is. It's amazing how I feel much the same way about a lot of records that I haven't heard for over 40 years, <laughs> and yet I feel the same way. It, 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 it doesn't say much about, it says a lot about, and I'm not patting myself on the back, I'm not, but I'm, I was very musically astute at 12 and 13. I was. I knew what I liked. It was like, it was like a God-given gift to know what I was listening to, and that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying I had... I was incredibly obnoxious. I'm just saying, man, there's something about this record I didn't <laughs> like, or there should have been, or there's obnoxious. something I really <laughs> did like about this. I just knew. I just knew. Oh, you know what? I don't like about this. The mix is not right. Like I knew all that yeah. stuff. I knew all that stuff when I was 12 years old. I could maybe know the words, 
But I said, I didn't like the sound of that, or I didn't like the sound of this. And, I or, no or I did I, I like it. I never started analyzing it until about uh, 10 years after when it came time But to it's record. not even analyzing it, Rob. It's it's just like my brother would bring it home and he'd say, what would you think of the uh, of the knack? And I'd say, I thought it just pounded really good. It, was, it wasn't strong all the way through. But, oh, man, I thought it was... And I, some of the lyrics I didn't like. Like, I knew this right away. I could say the same thing. It might be a little bit more mature how I say it now because I know about the lyrics a little bit more. Yeah, and you've but I'm basically express, saying yeah. the same thing I would have said in 1979. And when we do next week's record, I'm going to do the same thing because I feel exactly the way I did when I listened to it in 1979 for next week's record. And I just find that really weird. <laughs> <laughs> that that my feelings, even though I have changed so much as a person in over 40 years, my feelings on a lot of the records that I haven't listened to in a long time are exactly the same. And yet I only <laughs> listen to them once or twice. Some of them. Yeah. You know, some of them. So yeah. I give this a strong four stars. I wish I could give it more. I wish this band made it because they're so talented. They're so rocking. They, they are. Like, I was listening to it and I didn't know too much about the knack afterwards. I just know that I'd never heard them afterwards. <laughs> and it's like, how good are these? These guys are really good. How come I never heard of them afterwards? How come they have one of the best selling debut albums in the history of music and I disappeared? They disappeared, <laughs> which is true. They sold over 1 million copies in less than two months, spent five weeks at number one which is really hard to do for debut yeah. it's hard to do for anybody but to spend five weeks at number one on the billboard 200 album chart and they had at the time was one of the most successful debuts in the history of music not rock and roll in music and then just like rob said yeah but how did they disappear so quickly well, let me tell you, Rob. <laughs> that's why it's a long show today, because that question had to be answered. Yeah. Okay? The Mac were huge, and judging from listening to this album, they should have continued to be huge. But that's what I that's what I got that's from listening to this album. That's the one thing I got from listening to this Bermuda album. Bermuda Triangle, man. That's what I got from from hindsight. <clears throat> Because, of course, I didn't know what would happen to the band when I listened to this album all through 1979. I just thought it was a good four-star. I didn't give it four stars. No, but it was, but a, it was a good, good album to like. Yeah, I gave it four stars. I would have gave it four stars back then. I gave it four stars now. The one thing that I didn't know was that I didn't know that all this shit was going to happen and they would be forgotten in, in, in another year. And I thought this band was going to be big. I thought... How with all this talent, and I could hear it. I yeah. could hear the great drumming. I could hear the innovative bass playing. I didn't know how innovative it was, but I was knew really it. Really I knew it. I knew the songwriting was good because even at twelve years old or thirteen, I knew good songwriting. Even yeah, then. and I knew that the songwriting was there. I knew Doug Feger had a great voice. I said, uh, "Man, this band is 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 charted for big time." And boy, I would have lost money if I would have bet on that. <laughs> but that's why we have to tell the story. Is because how does a band go from having one of the most successful debut albums in the history of music to one year later being almost a leper in the music community? <laughs> and it, it's, a, it's a story that's fascinating, but it's scary about 
how, how fast how wrong, it can disappear. How many oh. mistakes you can make uh, thinking you're making the right move when you're making the wrong move, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, it cannot just hurt you. It can kill your career. And that's what <laughs> happened. The knack is a good signpost for bands. Don't, you know, just play your music. Don't let the marketing get out of the way. Uh, maybe don't talk about girls like they're like they're <laughs> like they're uh dogs or something <laughs> come on the rolling stones did, you know did the rolling stones did it with the you know a few songs uh i got to thinking about neil young uh down by the river we don't, i'm not we don't hate neil i young agree for that. but you know it's it, the one big difference is the 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 amount it's done that's exactly what i was going to say because we do have to end this you do it all the time we uh, do have to we much. are way over time you are making a great point. I just want to say you also answered your great point is that they went up to the line and they got criticized for it. Not that they <laughs> went back because criticized for it, but they knew the line. Yeah. They knew the line and they didn't cross it. They went about as far as they could. They got bitched at and they said, ah, fuck you. And, but they never said, ah, you know, I want to do this and that. And then they got to the point where it didn't matter. They got so big, like with some girls, yeah. they could say, yeah, I like to fuck black girls and all that shit that they, they could say anything they want. Yeah, they weren't disappearing after 20 yeah, years. Yeah, they weren't disappearing mm -hmm. after some girls. Trust me. In fact, it helped their sales. That's the difference. You take a band you don't know and they start talking about girls like that, you're dead. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're dead. That's 1979, let alone now. You yeah, do it now, and you won't not, even get a record contract. It's not like the old days. Anyways, we're so over time. How many stars you give this? Three and a half. Ooh, you gave it more stars than me. I, I, mean, I mean, I gave it more than all you. the music, uh, the, the elements about it. The playing was fantastic. Uh, the, uh, the actual recording was really good. The uh, the mix and the levels uh, was really good. But I tell you, the only two songs that really got me were the two I hear on the radio. The rest of them, I listened over and over again. They just didn't stick with me. Wow, I'm surprised by that. I actually am. I'm this, really surprised. For me, is like the the Kansas quandary, where you got the, an album with two really good songs, and the rest of them just they don't seem to. Fit. You know what? They're, I they're not right. I actually disagree with you, but that's what this show is for: two yeah. two opinions. And uh, if, really if you don't if you don't we hear really anything out of it, fight. I know if you don't hear anything <laughs> out if you don't hear hit songs or. Songs that are catchy, then you don't. Yes, if it doesn't, yeah. it, it grabbed me musically, but it didn't stick with me. Okay, fair enough. I actually thought that you'd rate it higher than I did because <laughs> you were defending it so hard, and I was going like, "Oh, okay." Um, that's all for today's episode. A very animated and great episode, except for the beginning half. <laughs> as always, <laughs> Which, yeah, that's uh, our style. That's our style. <laughs> and next week we will have another Power Pop album for you to enjoy or not, depending on your point of view. I know which side I fall on for the next album, but I'm not saying I may love it, I may hate it, I may be middling. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm unaware of any sides. <laughs> anyway, until next week, uh, take care and stay safe. Just write her off.